0: Father, we come before you, Lord, and thank you that we can worship in song. And now we worship, Lord, in your word, Father. We thank you for providing this space for us, Lord. We're blessed to have it. And now that we have the children's ministry, Lord, we're blessed to have that as well. And so thank you for providing for all of our needs. May you continue to provide for us. We thank you, Lord, and lift up all the prayer requests that come through the email and those in the agape box, Father. All the things that take place in and through our lives that we're dealing with right now, we lift them up to you, Father. And Lord, we desire to just set them aside so that we can just focus in on your word, Lord, and how it applies to us today and what we can leave here changed with, Father. So we, Lord, thank you for your provisions. Thank you for the tithes and offerings, Lord. May you continue to do a mighty work in and through our lives. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Romans chapter 3. We're going to pick up at verse 3 here. You know, he's, the Apostle Paul has been writing about the law, the righteous judgment of God. And regarding the law, I like what Spurgeon wrote. He said about the law, about the Bible. In the head it puzzles, on the back it burdens, But in the heart, it upholds. Isn't that beautiful? I love how he puts things. And I say that because Paul was trying to reach the heart. He's trying to bend the will of the people to the Lord. And he's doing that by taking us through that we're all sinners, no matter who we are. this is what he's presenting to the Jew. You see, we've had a running start here in the first section of chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. We're going to pick up here in verse 3. We'll see how far we get. I'm hoping to get through verse 4 at least. But in this first section, I told you, verses 1 through 8 are kind of the first section of chapter 3. Then we go into 9 through 20. Then we go through 21. Oh, and the atonement. That's what we're leading up to. See, Paul has been dealing with this imaginary antagonist. Why? What's the importance of doing this? Well, I don't think it's because he wanted to. I think it's because he has to. And he has to because his message is about Jesus. It's about Christ. It's about Messiah. It's about the cross. And it's about the atonement. And there must be an understanding of the human condition and sin before you can lead to the atonement. You have to be stripped down bare before you can understand and get to that place. His message is about freedom and liberty and not rules and regulations. His message is about grace and not law, what Jesus came to completely fulfill. And whenever you teach about grace and grace alone, oh, people get nervous about that. You mean there's nothing I have to do? I have to do something. We like to do things on our own. but whenever you teach about grace, there's an affront on the religious person. and that sometimes is us, even in the church. We think there's things that we have to do. But see, this is what this is the point that he's getting to. This is what Romans is all about. Grace. There's a reason why I chose to do Romans so that we would understand today, in the day that we're living in about God's grace and what it means. I think we need a clear understanding of that so that we could have that ever-increasing life of victory as Christians in this world so that we walk with joy. We don't have to wonder anymore. Why are we why don't we feel so pressured? Why don't we walk with joy that others might see us walking with that joy and want what we have and desire what we have? So Paul is talking about grace and affront to the religious person, especially here where Paul is teaching that all are condemned and they're standing back in amazement. You see, in their view, they thought Paul was calling God's word a lie in the last verses that we read. Therefore, he's making God, in their view, unholy. He's given us the promises. He's given us the oracles. We have it. It's ours. He's promised us. What do you mean? You're telling us he is unholy. They were saying, Paul, you're questioning God's promises and his covenants to us. And Paul says, on the contrary, I'm affirming them to you. You see, they had forgotten. He was reminding them that they had to look at all the scripture, all the law. If you're going to keep one, you got to keep All. It's good if you keep all of it. They had forgotten. He's reminding them. And he's saying, you guys only apply half-truths. We do that sometimes, don't we, when we quote Scripture? We quote the first half, we leave out the last. We do that all the time. You see, they were told, as we talked about last week in Amos 3.2, where it says, "...you only have I known of all the families of the earth." See, Paul, he's only known us. He doesn't recognize the Gentile, the Samaritan, anybody else in the whole world. And Paul says, no, go on. What does the rest of the scripture say? Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. It all applies. It all applies. The Apostle Paul, as he's thinking about this antagonist, this imaginary one, that he's writing to, he's used to these accusations. He's heard all of them because he has experiences. He uses their thoughts to prove his arguments. What a brilliant way to do it. So we might wonder here, how can he use his experience if he's never even been to Rome? Well, he may not have been to this church, but he certainly knew people of his day, didn't he? Such an important thing to think about. You see, the human soul under sin manifests itself the same everywhere you go. It doesn't matter. We may have different traditions and lifestyles and customs, but everyone's a sinner. And you can see sin in any society. It's identifiable. But with that brings an equal opportunity. It's an equal opportunity. Most everyone can be dealt with on what level? On a human level. We're all sinners. We're all made the same way. And guess what? Death comes to us all. There's no escape from it. And you bring it down to that level. And there's no escaping it at all. And so the Apostle Paul has been Stripping them down of all these false securities. We've seen it through these chapters. He's breaking them down, making them bare of all their false pretenses. And Paul is coming at it from this way. He has dealt with these arguments before. He knows his audience very well. We see it in Acts 24, you remember? Acts 24, 5, and 6, Paul is being accused of sedition at that time. Ananias and the elders, along with Tertullus, brought accusations to the governor, Felix. And it tells us in this verse, For we have found this man, as they bring him up, a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him, and wanted to judge him according to our law. So they're calling him this ringleader of those who followed Jesus, and they said that he spoke against God's word. He's speaking against the temple. And he wasn't. He was just presenting it as it was supposed to be presented. I mean, mean, you guys, don't you remember in Isaiah? We were supposed to go to the Gentiles. That's what the Bible says. Read your scriptures. But they were at a place where they just Knew that they had the law. That's all I need. Again, it's like us walking in and saying, Well, I have my Bible, but I don't know any content in it, thinking that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. He's breaking down those false pretenses. Remember again in Acts 26, 2021, 20, these accusations against him. Paul's giving an account of his life and says to King Agrippa that he was telling all in Judea and the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. And as a result, he says this, for these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. That was their fallback. Okay, we can't change this guy, so we just got to take him out. We got to kill him. And wasn't that what they did with Jesus? It's the same thing. They're not new arguments to Paul. He's heard them before. This is what they did with Jesus. We see Jesus in Gethsemane right before they're going to bring him to the Sanhedrin in Mark 14, 49, where Jesus says, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was with you daily in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. All the Old Testament fulfilled. All these arguments, not new to Paul. And if I can rightfully make the case He's using his past experiences in life to his favor. Undoubtedly, he has learned to combat each question one by one. This is what we find him doing here, using all those past experiences to put down all the arguments up front as he's writing this letter. This is what has been suggested as the apostolic method, a way in which to argue the scriptures When you have to explain the unknown, your fallback should be the known. This is what I do know. And in our case here, what does Paul know? Paul knows their thoughts. Paul knows where they're going to head. He's actually, in his argument, leading them in that direction. He's heading there, and he's taking up these arguments, these tough arguments. This has been called one of the uh, most difficult passages to understand because of all the weaving he seems to do. That's why we break it down. That's why we're probably only going to get through a couple of verses, taking it one by one. See, he knows their thoughts, where they're going, and it's because he understands their what? Their human condition. He understands their sinners. He's been there. He was on the road to Damascus. You think when he was on the road to Damascus, That that was his first time ever thinking, you know, about the scriptures? No, it was all forming in his head. And then Jesus shows up, and then it all just floods in. Oh my gosh, those scriptures that I've been reading all these years, that's what the Bible was talking about. Here he is. That's what happens to each one of us. I've heard these things before, and then Jesus shows up. And then we fall to our knees and we accept him as our savior. He understands these things. The apostle Paul knows he's been here. These are things that we could use as Christians too. So in verse three, we pick it up. Let's read one and two. We'll go into three. At verse one in chapter three of Romans, it says, What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So we pick up the argument here, on the next so-called imaginary question, or questions rather, this is a very finely woven argument. Jump ahead one moment to verse 8, where it says this, As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. You see, they were always slandering Paul. We jump ahead only, we're going to come back, but we jump ahead just to show they're always slandering him. So he's putting his argument up front. I understand you guys slander me, but they're always doing that because his preaching was constantly misunderstood. They thought he was teaching the opposite of what he was actually saying, saying, so he must explain. Don't you guys find that in your life? Constantly being misunderstood. Oh, you guys... The accusation against the church is that we hate people because we won't accept a certain lifestyle, and that's not the case at all. We love them so we tell the truth, and the truth hurts. When you get hit by that stone, you begin to lash out. But it's not us you're against. It's Jesus Christ. It's the Lord. It's God the Father Himself. You see the apostle Paul had just been telling them that they had great advantage in being a Jew they were given in response to Paul's answer they had the oracles the question naturally arises well what good is that if you say it's only good if it's obeyed so what if i what if some did not believe or what if some were not faithful so what you're saying Paul is We all have to be faithful for these promises to come true. This is the argument. And Paul is really being very gracious towards them, isn't he? He's being gracious towards the Jew at this time because he says, if some did not believe, but the fact of the matter is the vast majority did not believe. There was only a remnant that believed. So what if some do not believe? Does that mean that God's going to renege on his promises? This is the question. In other words, you're saying, Paul, we have a lack of faith. Does that mean that God will be unfaithful to us, to his word? Paul, you're not only questioning God's promises, but now you're questioning his fidelity. You're saying he's not true. He's not going to keep his word. Likely they were saying, did not the fact that God chose us as his people entered into a covenant with us, imply that we should be kept from perdition? This is what they were saying. This was their argument. And what a good argument. You're saying, Paul, that God's unfaithful. How could you say that? Now, any student of the Old Testament knows there are many promises to the chosen people. You remember all those promises given to them. But what's forgotten very often is that they were conditional. We read it already in Amos. That's just one example. If you do this, this will take place. If you do not do this, this will take place. That's what we forget. You see, they're keeping in mind these promises like Zechariah 12.10. I mean, and what a promise to hold to. It says this, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. This is a promise to Israel. Messiah is going to come. Now God has promised in his word that he will save the nation of Israel. But God's promise to restore and redeem Israel as a nation has been postponed right now. It's just postponed. See, a prediction like this had not happened yet in Israel. It has yet to be fulfilled. They have not all looked at Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This will eventually happen. Now, I don't want you to think that, I mean, I I point this out here, uh, and Paul does not leave the subject alone. I don't want you to think that Uh, This won't be dealt with, the restoration of Israel. We're not going to go into that right now, because Paul picks up this argument in more detail in chapters 9, 10, and 11. That's why this whole book is so wonderful. Because it's almost as if every argument you can ever think about is here in Romans. Now, he's just alluding to this. We're not going to dive deep into that just yet. We'll get to that in 9, 10, and 11. But here, what they're saying, Paul, you are now questioning God's fidelity. Once again, Paul here is being misunderstood, and he knows it will be misunderstood. They always misunderstood and misquoted him. They thought he was teaching the opposite of what he was saying. So this was their thought process, and so he deals with it. How comforting for us, if you think about it. We don't have to shy away from difficult questions. We don't have to do that as Christians. I know sometimes we think, I'm not good enough to answer that. I don't know the Bible well enough to answer that. And we're going to get into some of that. As we pick up verse 4 here, it says, so that's the question that's being asked. And he says in verse 4, Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words, and may overcome when you are judged. So Paul is going to reply in what is known as what I mentioned already, the apostolic method. He would use his experience and the truth in God's word to counter a false understanding. In other words, he would use what is known and definite to explain the unknown and the false. So let's look at this a little closer. Paul replies initially to the question by saying, certainly not, in the version I'm using here, the New King James. We know that this word includes the Greek word may. And it's suggested that the same words used in Romans 11, 1 are used here. May geneta, May it never be. May it not be. It's the strongest negative Greek expression usually carrying the connotation of impossibility. It's impossible. Paul is saying it's impossible. It can't be. You guys are wrong. It's like in today's vernacular, we would say, no way. No way, Jose. Can't be right. No, 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 no. You are absolutely wrong. This is what he's saying. That's the emphasis here. There's no way, he's saying, that God can lie. That's what he's saying. God is true. There's no possible way. He's saying if every person in the entire world got together, signed an agreement that God was not true, he would still be true. Think about that. That's the God we serve. The Bible tells us he puts his word above his own Name. His word is always true. In Jeremiah 28, 28 I love this. We see Jeremiah proclaiming Israel is going to go into captivity for 70 years. And all these false prophets are like, no, don't listen to Jeremiah. He doesn't know what he's talking about. When he had God's truth, this was God's spoken word, his truth. And then once they did go into captivity, At the very start of it, we see this false prophet Hananiah. You remember him? Hananiah comes along and he says, okay, guys, you're going to go into captivity, but don't worry about the 70 years. It's not going to happen. Only two. You're only going to be in captivity for two. And Jeremiah, so good, he comes to him and he says, man, I hope so. I hope you're right. He doesn't come and condemn him. He just says, I hope you're right, man. But I know you're not. Because that's not God's word. I wish it were so. But he doesn't argue with them. He just says, the Bible tells us he just goes away. It's just like that today. At the end of it all, there's a lot of people that proclaim everyone's going to be saved. I mean, at the end, how could God, you know, not take us all? How could he do that? Send anybody to hell? He wouldn't do that. I wish that were so, don't you? I wish that were the case. But it's not the case. Which is why we're out here proclaiming God's truth. If that was not the case, what would the point be? We could go and live however we wanted and do whatever we want. But there is a real heaven. There is a real hell. Which is why Jesus told us to go and to preach and to teach and to share. That's the Great Commission. It does not matter what you and I think. It does not matter what you and I feel or even what we believe to be true. It's only got what God's word declares. And we have to get that right in our souls. God's unconditional promises do not depend upon the faithfulness of man. That's an amazing truth, isn't it? Let me say that again. God's unconditional promises do not depend on the faithfulness of man. Because if it did, we would never need a Savior. We wouldn't have needed Jesus Christ to die on the cross. But thank God that He did, came down, died on the cross for us. Where is He sitting now? Where we're going to be the right hand of the Father. We are heirs with Him. Everything that He has is given to us. That's where we're headed. What joy. That's good news. What He has purpose. God, will always come to pass. In spite of who? In spite of you. In spite of me. He doesn't need me. And He doesn't need you. But He's chosen us. And He wants us. Oh, that's so good. That's good news. When you accept Christ, are you worried about losing your salvation? Does the Bible teach this? You see, this is where we're headed. These are the difficult arguments we're going to talk about in the atonement. This is what chapter 3 is going to, in verse 21, take us to. It's amazing. Because once you accept Christ, think about this. Philippians 1, 6. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? I mean, really, do you believe that? It's just a hint of where Romans is going to take us. That, my friends, is great news. I'm saved. I'm here. You see, when we're talking about the branch and the vine, am I as a branch on that vine trying to cling to Him and hold on to Him like I'm going to lose it. No, I'm this way. He's holding on to me and there's fruit coming out of my life if I'm truly in Him. This is where we're headed. And we will get there. I'm excited about it. But we're dealing with this right now, so let's get back to it. So let every man be a liar and God be true, as it is written, the Apostle Paul says in verse 4, and then it says that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Psalm 51. He goes to Psalm 51. Why? What's he referencing here? Referencing King David again. But why? Why is he doing this? How would this apply in this situation You guys remember when Psalm 51 was written? After David was confronted about his sin by Nathan, King David, the Bible tells us, was at home when others were at war. And he's walking around on his rooftop, looking down, noticing this young lady, brings her into his home, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. It's Uriah's wife. A man in his own army. And to cover things up, he has him killed in battle. And so David here is imagining everything is good. He thought he got away with it. All is right with the world. But God, through Nathan, exposes the sin. And then David writes this psalm. So you have this adulterer, you have this murderer. David's life, if you think about it, he's reaping what he sowed. His life after this was in turmoil. The baby that was born dies. Absalom, his son, tries to take over. And he's running. He's in living in caves. He's hiding out all the time. A man that could have complained about all of his circumstances. And in effect, this is what David is saying In this scripture, he's saying, Lord God, there's a moment when I thought that you were wrong and that I didn't deserve all this punishment. I felt that this was not right and that it's not fair. I'm your servant. You've called me. You've honored me. And I have begun to feel that it was all wrong, that I should be treated this way. And now David, being enlightened, has come to himself. And in this verse, he puts it very simple and plainly, and he says, I have sinned. Remember, he says, I have sinned against you and you alone, God. I have sinned. I don't have a single plea. I have no excuse. And what you have done and what you are doing to me is what? Perfectly right. I deserve it. Humble. Humble and contrite, God will not despise. And then he says what in these verses? Then, God, I want it to be made known and clear that you are absolutely just in everything that you do. You are sovereign. I am not. You are right. I am wrong. This is where the apostle picks up the quote. And he says, whatever man may do, God always does that which is right Let God be true, and every man a liar. He quotes King David so that the Jew would go, Whoa, that's David. And David said that. So that you would be enlightened and go, Okay, that argument's done. Nothing I can say about it now. No way, Paul says. God's always faithful. His word true. And you misunderstand me. So let me put it to you very plainly. See, this is the apostolic way of arguing. You take what is known to explain the unknown. We did that last week. This, we see, is what the Apostle Paul is doing. Now, I have to confess that it's hard to find application when all this is being written, this portion is being written to the Jew. It's hard to find application for us, but by way of application... This apostolic method is a very good and very safe way to argue a point. Going to what is known to help affirm and explain the unknown. And it is a tool that every born-again Christian can master. We can all master it. I was asked recently by a young lady if I knew any good books on apologetics. Apologetics being the defense of the faith through argumentation it's christians in other words who defend their faith against critics and recommend our faith to the lost well i didn't want to look stupid because i know don't don't say i already do but i didn't want to look stupid and so i said the old i don't know i'll get back to you on that but i didn't know i'm racking my brain trying to figure out which is a good book what book is really good on apologetics i I don't know. I wanted something really good to recommend to her. But as I'm studying this text, it hits me. The Apostolic Method. The Bible is the best book. You see, I don't want to sound cliche or cheesy with that comment, though. Oh, everybody always says that. But think about it with me for a moment. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing right here. Not only do we see him do it with Scripture... We also see him use his experience, and that's something we all have. Nobody can take away my experience of my salvation time, my moment, my time with the Lord during devotional time. You cannot take that away from me. You cannot argue that out of me. I know when the Lord's speaking to me, and I can tell you when, and I can refer to the scriptures and tell you what he was telling me at the time. Experience. This is what we find him doing, and it's so good. So in other words, what he's doing is he's using his knowledge, and he's commingling it with his life lessons. He has experienced these arguments before. He knows the typical thought process, so he knows how to approach the subject, and it's the same with us. We know we are to study to show ourselves approved, We know we are to have an answer to everyone who asks of us. But I think many times we take that and we get all nervous and scared and we feel like we have to know everything all at once as born-again Christians. Like if I don't meet up to that scripture, then I must not be a Christian. How am I supposed to know all of this stuff all at once? But we take it piece by piece. He knows how to approach it and so should we. When we're challenged with questions beyond our scope, we can become defeated. We can feel defeated. Like, I don't know, man, I should know that. Now, there are some things you should know, and we got to get those basics down. But if we use the known to help us explain the unknown, then we can build upon it. When I first accepted Christ... I put a sticker on the back of my truck that said Jesus on it. It's all it said, Jesus. And my friends would kid around with me like, what, what's going on with you? What, Jesus, what does that mean? What do you even mean by just having that? And I was like, I don't know. All I know is he changed my life. And that's all I could say because I didn't know anything else. But that's where you start. And you build upon it and you build upon it. See, what Paul does here is brilliant. He is a product of his environment. He uses it for the Lord, and this is what we must do. We take what we know about Christ right now, then we ask ourselves, what is my environment? What's my sphere of influence here? Within my age group or work or school or setting, where I'm at, what are the common themes that I see happening around me? What are people dealing with the most What are the common questions that they're asking? And then I take that. And then I ask myself, how do I share this hope that I have with them? What's the best approach? You see, sometimes we just want to come full bore and shove it down people's throat. And that approach I've done. And that doesn't work. (laughs) Maybe it does in some cases. But man, if you're just living it, and they see it and you're reading your word and it's changing you these are the questions we should be asking how do i take the known to explain the unknown and what's unknown to them what's unknown to them is jesus christ the cross the atonement what does that mean and what the apostle paul is doing is he's starting with the righteous judgment of god and he's saying hey we're all sinners It doesn't matter who you are. I can use my experiences and my life with the Lord to explain to others what Christ has done for me. Who can take that away from you? And we can talk about how He moves and how He works in and through our lives. And by doing this, I can then what? I can anticipate questions and I, I can begin to prep for them. And most often the questions are not theological. Their life experience. Man, I'm dealing with my marriage is on the rocks. How do you, as a Christian, deal with that? Whatever it might be, we can use those things to minister to them. Once I have these things down, I can move on to the more difficult arguments, but we can use these things. And let me tell you something. What a it's been called a combustible combination. What? Doctrinal precision and experiential power, it creates an explosion called the Christian life. Isn't that neat? Doctrinal precision and experiential power creates an explosion called the Christian life. And a Christian life ablaze, who can put that fire out? As Samuel Chadwick wrote, Men ablaze are invincible, and hell trembles when men kindle. Do you kindle? Do you kindle for Christ? Are you burning for the Lord? Do you have that desire to share what you have inside you? That joy, that truth? What a great apologist. And a great apologist you and I will be if we follow the method here. What a great defender of the faith we find in the Apostle Paul. And we think sometimes, well, look at what he knew. I mean, look at who he's called. He was the Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees. I am not like that. Oh, yeah, you are. You have the Spirit of Christ in you. Same Spirit in God is in you and me. We have it. We can use the apostolic method by using previous experiences and arguments and being a wise preacher desiring that all these people be taught and grounded in the faith. He's attempting to meet every possible argument and every kind of situation because he desires everybody to know Jesus Christ and this this should be our desire as well and I believe that it is I believe that everybody born again Christian here knows this wants to do this and sometimes we just don't know how it's burning inside of us and we pray Lord give us the opportunity and then what give me the words and then just let it flow Let him go. Let him do it, because chances are that person coming to talk to you or that he's led you to is already prepared. Just like the Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus, he was prepared to hear at that moment Jesus speak to him. And that's what we need to do. We'll pick it up here next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this place. We thank you for blessing us, Lord. And we pray, God, that you would help us to go out here ablaze, Lord, on fire for you. Lord, there's a lot of junk happening. We know. We don't have to be told over and over. We hear it on the news every day. We want to know how to walk with joy so that others might come to know you. Not us. Not our problems. Lord, you tell us to come to you and put those on you because you care for us. That's what we come here to do together. We come here together to pray together, to prep, to get ready on this first day of the week. But we pray, Jesus, that you indwell us with your Holy Spirit, empower us to take these words of truth to those, Lord, who are lost, whoever that might be. And we don't know. So, Lord, we pray for those opportunities. We pray for those people who need to know you that we come into contact with. We pray for their hearts that the scales would be removed from their eyes. And it's in Jesus' name that we all said, Amen. God bless you guys. One more song, and then snacks and coffee. God bless you.